Yes, well, we're going to have a, a sister duo, uh, co-authors of this wonderful new cookbook called Parenthesis Serious, close parenthesis, New Cook. And um, that's probably where to start with. I want to start with um, who exactly, when, when I got the book, I opened it up and, and I realized that this is not a beginner's or a children's cookbook. It, it is a very serious um, approach. And give us some idea of why you thought it was the right approach, what you saw lacking in cookbooks, what you hoped to do with this cookbook, and who you wanted to address. Who's your audience? Oh, wait, I didn't say your names. I better tell you the names first. Uh, Leah Sue Kuroga and Cammy Kim Lynn. Uh, and as I said, they're, they're sisters. Um, uh, the, Leah is the chef. Yes? What? Yes, that's correct. And, 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 and Cammy is the educator and writer. And That's together, right. you couldn't put two greater talents. I mean, a perfect, just perfect pair for this cookbook. Okay, <laughs> oh. now I'm letting you two loose to say, who, what is this cookbook, and who is it for? That that's all very sweet of you. Thank you, Anne, so much. We <laughs> we do think we're a pretty good duo. This is Cammy speaking right now. Um, you know, Leah's the professional, and she when she was the chef at Chez Panisse. I brought my children. Uh, my son was just a baby the first time he went to Chez Panisse. And so my kids, who are a little bit older than Leah's kids, really grew up in a house with a pretty serious home cook and with an aunt who is this exceptionally um, accomplished professional chef. And so they grew up with lots of food and lots of cooking. And when they got to the age where they had aged out of children's cookbooks, yes. it was clear that they had an interest in all of our beautiful adult cookbooks, but they just didn't have enough in uh, teaching, really, in those cookbooks. They could look at the recipes and drool over them and want to make them, but they just didn't have enough, I guess, background knowledge in order to pull those recipes off. So what would happen is my son is a, a young teenager would try to make something and he would constantly holler, hey, Ma, does this look right? Or does it mean to fold something? <clears throat> Which is fine. Of course, I loved cooking with him. But we just realized that there was this big gap between children's cookbooks and adult cookbooks. There really was not much in this kind of young adult range um, for, for a person who was serious about good food. You know, this was a kid who grew up around a lot of del delicious food, so he didn't want just the absolute basics. He wanted to make really delicious stuff, but there just weren't any cookbooks that could help him do quite that. And so one quite, day... You're quite right, because we get tons of cookbooks, as you can well imagine, and this is the first one, I believe, that addresses that audience. Thank you. Aww. Thank you. Go ahead. I mean, that, that really, that, that was what our hope was. It, it was a really authentic desire. And so the way that I kind of thought of it was that um, I wanted my kids to have a cookbook that was like having their aunt right there next to them in the kitchen. So mm -hmm. Leah lives in California, and I live in New York. And, you know, we would get together, and the kids would cook with her. And they would cook, you know, just all the usuals with me. But then she would leave, and it felt like there was this gap. So the idea of writing a cookbook that was like putting her right next to them in the kitchen um, alongside to explain everything and show everything and really give all of the information that would help them develop a deep background as a, a person who wants to have fun in the kitchen and is still a young person but is serious about food and about learning how to make great stuff. So yeah, I mean, was, I, I see it with my – I see it with our grandchildren um, – you know, if, if our granddaughter, who's going to turn 16 in January, uh, is going to make something, there are all these questions that come up as you're going along. And, and, and until now, there's no answer to them. <laughs> you have, let me just preface this whole interview by saying this book is so full of good things, good information, uh, good writing, good humor, um, joy, that it's going to be real hard, listeners, for us to cover this whole thing. We're just going to do our best. 
Okay, back to you. <laughs> uh, maybe we, we should also have um, uh, uh, Leah t- explain that she is not only a trained chef, she is a CIA graduate and, and worked her way to the top head cook at the Chez Panisse, which is saying something. Go ahead. So this is Leah here. So, you know, the food is food that we sort of foodies, for lack of a better word, eat. It's not special food written. It's not recipes written just for kids. So it's the food that that we all want to eat. It's really the writing, and that's where I feel like Cammy, the writer, did such a great job nailing the language oh, perfect. to that yes. group. Yeah, so it's, um, it's, te- it's a, there's a lot of teaching, but it's also not, you know, a lot of cookbooks these days I feel like have the teaching matter written in the front of the cookbook. They go through uh-huh. sort of the basics, and that takes a lot of time. That takes time sitting down reading that. It's not written into the recipes, and we wanted something where, um, you know, like your grandchild could come and flip open, pick a recipe, and the teaching was right there written right into the recipes. Well, you succeeded doing that. It's beautiful, really. Mm-hmm. Um, Thank you. Now, um, you, as I said, I mean, you, of course, you work with the best. You work with Japanese, so you have the best ingredients and so forth. You have some premises that this cookbook um, really lists. Um, that what, what's it called here? I'm looking for what it's called. And you Our do one, two, three, four, five. Serious, uh, new, serious cook new cook principles. Why don't you run down yeah. one, two, three, four, five? Yeah, so the first one, and this really came from my, my years at Chez Panisse, is just oh, to sure. use good ingredients. And if you start with good ingredients, you don't have to do so much to it to make it taste good. So just using the best ingredients you can find. Ideally, that would be local, only because then those ingredients haven't traveled as far and they're fresher, um, traveled as far to get to you. So they're fresher and they just taste better. Organic, ideally, um, and in season. Um, And those things are, you know, if you can shop at a farmer's market, um, it depends where you live, of course, but just the best ingredients that you can find will produce a better end result. Um, And then the second thing is to taste and adjust. People say that, but you actually explain it. (laughs) And it's very important. And, yeah, you can't just go through this whole recipe and then have one last taste and, and, and try to adjust. Explain what you yep. mean by taste and adjust. And it's also tasting um, as you as you go, not just the final product, because a lot of times you get to that final product and then it's harder to make the adjustment. So it's easier exactly. if you taste as you go. So, and I constantly do that still, you know, always, everything I'm cooking. Um, I'm tasting it, you know, you're making a sauce. Like you don't want to taste it when it's on the plate and you if you can't make your adjustments then. You want to taste it, you know, early on. So tasting for, it, at first it might just be tasting for salt. And then it might be tasting to see if those onions are, are quite done enough or done before you add the next step. Um, yeah, I, I love like your tasting. idea of the salt pot because I have one. I mean, it, it, the, the Nobody else has ever mentioned that to me or in any of the books I read. How useful it is to have it right there so you could just take a pinch, you know, like a salt pig. Right, because, I mean, all along the way. In fact, Cammie and I were just discussing today um, this delicious salad we had. We just went out to lunch, and she she understands the importance of, for instance, tasting, I mean, um, seasoning your tomatoes. Um, seasoning them before you add them to a salad, but she hadn't thought about seasoning your lettuce and not just having your vinaigrette be the seasoning, but salt your lettuce first and then add uh-huh. your um, your vinaigrette or your dressing on top of that. It really does make a difference to build these layers of flavors and to adjust yeah. them. So maybe you, you salted your lettuces a little too much and then you add your vinaigrette and you realize, oh, maybe I need to add a little bit more lettuce because it's too salty <laughs> or a little more lemon juice. And you can, if you taste it, then you can always make adjustments afterwards. And can yeah. I just add, this is Cammy now, I, I really feel like that is one of the most important things to becoming a good cook. And I, I remember when cooking shows, not just those marvelous old PBS cooking shows, but, you know, the sort of glossier cable TV channel cooking shows came out. In the beginning, I remember noticing uh, something that felt 
a little different and maybe a little off with some of them to me, which was that they would cook a recipe in front of the camera and often never taste a single thing along the way until the end when they would put the fork in and have a bite and they would invariably say, (laughs) oh, it's perfect, it's delicious. And I just remember thinking, well, either I am not a very good cook because there's no way that last bite was going to taste good when I cooked it unless I tasted it many times along the way to fix it. Or they're kind of putting on a show is a little misleading, I think. And so, yeah, see, let me put insert one thing here is the other thing that you're really exemplifying now that I find in this cookbook is it's very direct and honest, and you can tell that the people writing it have experience and know what they're talking about. So you're confident in it. Yeah. The Peters are trying to ask something. Go ahead, Rabbit. Well, I, and and, you, and so this is Leah here now, and it doesn't have much to do with a cook skill because one tomato one day will taste different than your t- same batch of tomatoes a few days later, and you're yeah, going to. This is another thing you say yourself. that's true, and you, no, no, not everybody tells that. you that. Yeah. I mean, everything's different. Salt's different. I mean, all the ingredients exactly. could be different. Yeah. So, Rabbit, yeah. what you were saying. Well, I don't know if you remember. This while back, you were interviewing Thomas Keller, and for some reason, out of the blue, and I can't remember why, you said, "Can can you smell salt?" <laughs> ah, and how and how did Thomas Keller respond? He he said yes. Wow. I can. I can smell salt. Can you? You know, I have often actually thought about this. So for the things there that you, you can't taste. Like when I'm making sausage, I was just telling Cammie, I was like, oh, do you always buy sausage or do you sometimes make your own? So I have two smaller children and they don't like spicy food yet. Hopefully they will one day. Um, Mm -hmm. And so I often make my own sausage by just buying ground pork and then adding a few spices to it. So something like that, you have to cook a piece, obviously, to taste it and then adjust. And I always wished that I could, you know, in making large batches, smell if it was enough salt or not, but yeah. I don't know. I mean, I, I, can I honestly can smell salt. salt. Yeah, I can. Oh. You tell That's them. So That's interesting. Not That's... lying, am I, rabbit? <laughs> I, I, also, I, also, I also had a, a, a question, which is really a joke, but is it, or is it not true that Alice Waters used to pick vegetables out of the sidewalk? I would not doubt it. <laughs> <laughs> I have, I do have, it reminds me of another funny story. We went, I went with her and Michael Pollan to do um, a dinner at the World Economic Forum in Davos where in the middle of winter there were not many vegetables and we went to a little local restaurant and she pulled out of her purse a bag of greens and we all sort of secretly <laughs> passed around these beautiful and greens to have some salad along with the meat at the dinner. <laughs> oh, what a riot. It's funny. <laughs> Yeah. She finds vegetables wherever she can. <laughs> yes, yeah, she, she certainly does. <laughs> she does. <laughs> so, okay. um, so so, I, I think this is Leah here again. I can get back to the principles. So the third one yeah. is to experiment. Um, you know, I think when you when even, so that's even important. if I'm following, yes, then yeah, like that's, when I follow a recipe for the first time, I, I'll I'll follow the recipe as is. But then it's really the second time that I can, I can make changes and sort of experiment and make it so that it's how I like it or that my family might prefer it. Well, you sort of do some of that in the book because you have a basic recipe and then you have a right. couple of variations, but you're encouraging people to experiment and develop it even further with other options. So. Yeah, and, and that part I think is also... Um, a part of the kind of serious that we think about is we didn't want this just to be a collection of recipes so that you could simply master a recipe and then kind of be done with it and move on. Our hope is that when you read the recipe and you work your way through it, if you can pay attention to these principles and you understand what it might mean to experiment as you go and to pay attention to how one little move, a little bit more heat, uh, a different type of salt or a pinch of salt, a little bit of this or that changes things, that that's really how you become a better cook. That's what, like, I don't think a good cook is just someone who knows how to make a bunch of recipes. It's someone who knows right. when to follow a recipe and when to deviate and what they like and how it works with their ingredients and all of that. 
involves experimentation, really. And it's hopefully fun along the way. That's kind of. Are, are, you, still, are you still chefing? I am not, and uh, although I feel like I'm, I'm cooking more than ever because I'm cooking, you know, three meals a day for my family, but I'm not working in a restaurant anymore. Gosh, and I don't know if I could anymore. <laughs> yeah, it's it, a hard it, life. On, it really is, yeah. Yeah, it's very hard. Okay, so then you move on to share and, and have fun, two, two great principles there. <laughs> yeah, oh, we're talking about the that, that's right. And both of those, I think, sharing and having fun are in some ways kind of obvious, but part of it to me is thinking about how um, it's, there are a lot of reasons to cook. You cook because the food's delicious. You cook for nourishment. You also cook for enjoyment, hopefully, and for yourself, but you cook to nourish others. And there's something about communing over a meal that's so important. And even if the food isn't exactly the way you wanted it, even if it's not perfect, that there is such joy in sharing it that that feels like a really important part. So making enough to share with others. And the piece about having fun seems maybe kind of obvious, but I think – it's hard to balance sometimes the, the concept of seriousness and fun, right? The mm-hmm. serious is in parentheses for us because uh, we do mean serious, but we mean serious about cooking and about good food, but we don't want serious to mean stuffy or pretentious or anything like that. Really, it's as much fun and art and experimentation as, as anything else. So just kind of balancing all of those things to us equals the keys to becoming a good cook. And I want to stress to the readers that when they get this cookbook, um, read through the section called Extra Credit, um, things that take concepts or ingredients and expand on them because there's a lot of really good information in here. I mean, I loved your your whole thing about anchovies, for example. I found a lot of wit in this section, too. But um, you know, there are so many tinned anchovies out there that are horrible. <laughs> I'm glad you put that in because some people just will automatically say they don't like anchovies because they've had nothing but bad anchovies. Right. Yeah. And you do true. this through all kinds of things. I mean, you just talk about so many things. So this is a section that people should actually read. Uh, you know, as uh, separate from, I mean, it's educational. I mean, it's definitely, uh, your ginger section is great too, by the way. Thanks. Uh, all of this, I really enjoyed that sort of, that whole extra credit section. Um, uh-huh. Let's go to the recipes themselves. Um, I think that we already mentioned that you have the recipes, you have a basic, and you have variations on it. Um, and we did, haven't mentioned how many different resources you had. We said you grew up with a lot of good food. But give our readers some idea of of all the different ethnicities involved in your life and experiences. Okay, this is Leah here. So we grew up in a very multicultural family. Um, my our, our mother is Korean, uh, born and raised in Korea. Our father is half German and half Lithuanian. He was born in Germany. <laughs> and he was a hunter when we were growing up. And his good friends, his, his hunting buddies, was one of them was a German butcher. The other one was an Italian knife sharpener. And they all brought <laughs> to the table. <laughs> and your um, Italian neighbors, I loved that. Oh, they're, they're phenomenal. They, they snuck back a whole prosciutto leg in their suitcases during the summers, <laughs> and we would carve out chunks of prosciutto and go sit down and watch. You know, it's before we knew you should thin it, slice it thinly and that it's very salty. We would eat chunks of prosciutto while we were watching movies and then wake up in the middle of the night so parched because we needed some water. It was too salty. Um, so, but I feel like that really um, it, – it, and then my dad had a big garden. So that, all of that really informed our palate. Um, so the book represents all of that. That's the food we grew up with. Um, do you want to tell the funny story about the potato pancakes? <laughs> <laughs> sure. so, it is, tell us about the potato pancakes. potato pancakes. So our mom is a phenomenal cook. Um, she cooks food from all around the world. I think her way of holding on to her Korean heritage, her culture, 
part of it was really maintaining her desire to cook really authentic Korean food, even at a time when it was hard to get Korean ingredients. But her way of becoming American, her new country, was also learning how not only to speak the language fluently, but to cook all of the food of all of the different cultures around her. So she learned so much um, amazing Italian cooking from our Italian neighbors. And we, this, one of our favorite recipes in the book um, is a potato pancake recipe. And we always tell this story about it, uh, which was that when we were young, I think I might have been about four or five, and so Leah was a couple years older, we had some Korean, we call them cousins, but really they were friends, you know, the children of friends of friends, but in a very, very small Korean community in Metro Detroit. And they had just moved to the United States And our mom wanted to treat them to a really special American breakfast. And so she she made blueberry cakes. And years later, the way they told the story to us was that, um, you know, Leah and I don't really speak Korean. And the way they told us the story was that the blueberry pancakes were set down in front of them. And Leah and I picked up the big bottle of Anjumaima syrup and turned it upside down and positively flooded the plate with syrup and said, this is how you eat them. And they took one bite and put their forks down. Because the truth is, in Korea, nobody, especially back then, would eat a breakfast like that. You know, to imagine something so sweet for breakfast was kind of unfathomable. So my mom, without missing a beat, um, she went into the kitchen and she whipped up some potato pancakes and brought them to the table with a little bowl of soy sauce. And of course, everybody devoured those. So in our minds, our mom was so smart. She managed to make pancakes, which we thought of at the time as this very American thing. But she, she attuned it to, uh, you know, in a savory way to an Asian palate and served it with soy sauce. And so all of our lives growing up, we, every time we would make potato pancakes, including for our own children now, we always serve them with applesauce sour cream or yogurt, uh, and soy sauce. We, none of us will make them if we don't have all three. Yes, I just said that you would never make them if you didn't have all three. <laughs> yes, isn't that funny? But then the funny thing is when we were writing the cookbook, I wanted to do a little bit of research to figure out uh, exactly how our mom came up with the recipe, which, again, we always assumed. So there, there was an original house of pancake not too far from us in Metro Detroit, and they served potato pancakes. Uh, and my mom always enjoyed them. And then also because our dad is German and Lithuanian, uh, we learned some cooking from his parents who also lived in Michigan. So we always thought that our mom had, had come up with that, her recipe for potato pancakes, either from the German-Lithuanian side oh, right. or from the local pancake house. While we were researching the cookbook, we actually learned, to our absolute shock, that there's a Korean potato pancake recipe that is nearly identical. <laughs> so we called our mom and asked her which version it was, and she had no idea. She just thought, I don't know, she said something like, this is America, Cam, like it's a melting pot. It was probably all of those things. But <laughs> this whole time we just thought that it was, you know, this European or American recipe. But in fact, it might have been Korean all along. In fact, we had went out to a great Korean restaurant last night here in New York, and they had potato pancakes yeah. on the menu. It's the first time I've seen potato pancakes on a Korean menu. <laughs> yeah, but one of the things you do is you take classic recipes and um, and you kind of perfect them, refine them. I mean, I don't know what term to use, but I see that uh, an not only just the Korean ones, but uh, like the um, green tortilla soup is another one. I mean, there there are a bunch of them that people would have a way of doing, but you kind of super soup soup up, <laughs> soup up. You know what I mean? You you knock it up um, another level. I mean, I've, one of the things that struck me was the changes you made to a classic Romesco sauce. Hmm. Yeah, I mean, you've obviously been making it and trying to figure out and finally hit on something that you thought you would recommend. Yes, this is this is Leah here. So the Romesco sauce was, I, I don't think I had been introduced to it until working at, I definitely hadn't, until working at Chez Panisse. Although you did a semester abroad in Spain, right? So you probably tried it there in college and learned that it's yeah. more like their 
ketchup sauce that they have everywhere. So the the way that it's in the recipe um, in our book is more like the one we would make at Chez Panisse. Although um, my family, my husband and children are gluten-free, so I just leave out the bread. I think in the we leave it out altogether. I, and I would just realize that it, I wasn't missing anything when I left it, left it out. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, we've definitely made some changes. Like the green goddess is often yeah. made with an egg, egg yolk. Um, and my daughter, when she was three at the time, she would help me make it with the blender. Um, and I just realized, like, I don't need the egg yolk. We can just add a little bit of yogurt and a Greek yogurt and get that same consistency, uh-huh. and it's much easier. So we've definitely made some tweaks that make it a little bit easier or just to suit yeah. our Well, your taste. fennel and citrus salad, by the way, is like one of the the oldest, most basic um, of Sicilian uh, seasonal mm-hmm. salads. Mm-hmm. It's, it, I mean, it's, it's fennel with orange and, you know, uh, and that's it, you know. But you have that all arranged, too. You have um, different kinds of oranges and... Uh, you know, you, you specify the vinegar, and you don't leave it to chance. You even include blood oranges, which, of course, are very Sicilian. I was very impressed with that recipe, by the way. So. You know, that recipe, it actually is one of my favorite recipes also. I made it um, just to bring to a dinner party the other day and made it at Thanksgiving. Um, that one actually is a guest recipe from Bryant Terry. So one of the things that we really enjoyed doing in the cookbook was not only gathering our own family recipes and Leah's pro-kitchen recipes, but also inviting a handful of um, other really just important and interesting uh, chefs from around the country and ask them to contribute a recipe or share a recipe with us so that we would have a way to introduce a new audience to a broader range of, of folks who we think are yeah, doing important. Yeah, you have reference to Sean Sherman. I never found what recipe he had, but that certainly was a, a, a stroke of genius. He's incredible. He's so. really incredible. Um, I, yes. That's actually another one of my favorite recipes. So, so the citrus and fennel salad, that one is one of that's Bryant Terry's recipe. So we enjoyed being able to write a little bit about Bryant and that recipe, which a lot of people have said that they've really, really enjoyed. Um, and he tells a little story about um, how he came to make his own version of that. Um, and so that's that recipe. And Sean Sherman's recipe is um, a, a corn a corn cake. It's, we, we call it um, Sean Sherman's corn and then pan in parentheses. So like yeah, it's, it's in our little pancake it. trio. And the interesting thing about that is that Sean Sherman, um, you know, he's been doing such incredible work for so many years. And now he has a restaurant that just won the James Beard Award um, for Best yes. Restaurant, Awamni. Uh, yep. uh, and he has really elevated dishes there. And the base of some of those dishes is essentially this corn cake. So he's used this, this corn cake in a lot of different ways, from something extremely simple and basic, like an everyday thing to make, to something really exceptional and special um, that you can add all kinds of things to, like braised bison. And um, So we, we have not the really fancy version, but the thing that's at the heart of it, which is that corn cake. And it's a really simple recipe and really delicious. But more than anything... I really, really enjoyed the opportunity to, you know, share with new readers, this new generation of cooks, some information about the work that he's doing um, and how just important and Oh, it is important. So, yeah. It's a, well, I mean, I, I warned everybody, all the listeners, that this book is so exceptional and, and dense with information that we would not be able to cover everything. So we, we haven't. I mean, don't, don't feel that there are no desserts in because there are listeners. Everybody wants to make sure there are desserts someplace. Again, it's called Seriously New Cook, and it's Leah Sue Kiroga and Cami Kim Lin, which are a sister duo, um, a chef, an educator, a writer, serious talent in the series new cookbook thank you both for talking to us and um, tell me what to do with my kale tonight how about garlic <laughs> lots of garlic um i would say and alice would agree you should make kale toast <laughs> to, uh, you know she sautes it quickly it depends how tender it is you'll have to taste it and adjust it 
and saute it, cut it up, saute it with some garlic, a little lemon. There's a recipe in the book that was the original recipe at Alice's Edible Schoolyard. Um, She puts a little goat cheese on a a baguette toast and some kale on there. Um, Yeah, I think that's it. Sounds good. Okay, both of you, thank you again and again. And, um, yeah, and everybody rush out and get this cookbook because it's at the top of the current cookbook list as far as I'm concerned. Thank you again. Thank you, Anne. Thank you, Peter. Great chatting with you. Podcasting services for On The Menu Radio are provided by ASP Station, www.aspstation.net. Yeah, we're going to be talking to a current phenomenon here, uh, Ryan Kim, um, of, of this wonderful market. It's an e-commerce market, but I mean, it's hang, it hangs out essentially in Brooklyn, New York, called Kim C Market. Um, I read about this, um, Ryan. I, I I think it was on Eater about the uh, Golden Queen rice, and that's why I contacted you. Um, so I, I tried out the, um, the, the rice. You said three varieties of it. Uh, and um, I, I thought I, I really had trouble following directions. The, uh. I, did, I, I watched the video, uh, and I did the whole thing. I put it in the pan, and I put my palm flat on it, and I covered it two fingers more water than rice, and I cooked it for 15 minutes, turned it off and let it set for 15 minutes, and it got brown on the bottom. Is it supposed to do that? You just probably did a very amazing job because traditionally uh, that's how Koreans cooked the rice. So the bottom (laughs) is brownish. Yes, it's, uh, it's more crunchy. And then on top is the rice. And then what Koreans do traditionally, they take the brown things out because it's crunchy. And then they oh, see, I like them. I, in fact, I enjoy eating them. <laughs> yes, they well, I, actually I eat it like is, a snack. I think Ryan is saying this Koreans do the same thing. Now, okay. Now, now we, asked, we asked him a question before we, before we came on the air, and, and he didn't <laughs> answer. So back, back to that question. How, how did you first land up in Brooklyn making rice? <laughs> By the way, uh, first of all, thank you so much for having me here. Uh-huh. Uh, so my name is Ryan, and we are Kimchi Market, and I live in Brooklyn, New York. And okay. uh, we, none of us, none of uh, Kimchi Market people, team, uh, had prior food-related experience. I I worked in banking, government, consulting, <laughs> and startup. So I wanted to do different things. And then the remaining members of the teams are from fashion. But one thing common was that we were very particular, and we wanted to have a higher quality, better quality Korean food. And we looked around, and we were not able to find those natural uh, or, you know, better quality uh, Korean food. So we started uh, just importing ourselves with no experience. We were the concerned customers. Were you in Brooklyn by now or were you still in Korea? Oh, I, worst, everyone is here in Brooklyn. And I've been in Brooklyn for, I'll say, like 15 years or 17 years. And I lived in Manhattan before. You're right. And the whole premise of of your starting your business is correct. I mean, every place you look, there is Korean food. And not much of it is like the real quality Korean food. Uh, and uh, I was going to ask you two questions. The first one is, 
why all of a sudden is everybody enthralled with Korean food? It's a huge trend. Well, that's an interesting question that I always had. Uh, born and raised and coming to America when I was in high school, uh, I was busy just trying to adapt and you know, adapt the Western and American culture and mm-hmm. cooking and eating. And I think it's just slow uh, development of... And I thought first it was, I thought it was a New York thing. New York is such a cosmopolitan, yeah. international place where I make so many friends from different backgrounds, different mm-hmm. countries. And then I think it was just about five, six years ago, that's when people sort of gradually start, started talking about Korean food, the barbecues. It became more common. And then, yeah, well, barbecue has been popular for a while. But, yes. I mean, now it was, there was a time when you did not have that, what's it called, gochujang sauce in every refrigerator, <laughs> which we have now. Yes, yes, gochujang, the red chili paste. Gochujang, so I think, yes. so I, I think that everything was actually working uh, in harmony. So K-pop became pretty big, so a lot of people listen to BTS okay, and K-pop, pop groups. Yes, K-pop and then people also um, K-dramas. Like they uh-huh. watch Korean movies, very well made, and Korean TV soap operas. And uh-huh. it became really popular. And you see that what Koreans eat. So I think that triggered people's interest. Oh, I, I want to eat something like that. And now... The Korean singers and stars on interview, they say, oh, I come to America and I liked this food or that food. So, and then people start following, uh, eating the similar things. I have a very interesting <laughs> experience. So, I, okay. my mom is in L.A., California, and uh, I took my family out to L.A. And I wanted to have this particular food that's a... Uh, beef, like interesting parts. We call it kopchang. And like there are maybe two blocks away from where my mom lives. And she said, oh yeah, there's a popular restaurant. And we went there like around 6.30 p.m. Or during the weekday. It's raining. And there were, there was, there's a long line. And it's all non-Koreans. And the uh, way Steph says, oh, yeah, you have to wait two hours. <laughs> I'm like, we just wanted to have this. Uh, you know, in New York, you know, L.A. has better uh, of that uh, food. So we were, like, debating, and then we ended up not staying there. Um, mm-hmm. So we missed it. And I, the, the owner and the way Steph there told me that the, one of the BTS members – talks about that particular restaurant. Uh-huh. Then next day, it was all booked. It was oh, no, yeah. yeah, you can't get in there. Uh-huh. So I think those all uh, really made Korean food uh, interesting and people wanted to try and it became a huge thing. Because if you try it, you know this is really good. Yes. Um, the... the um, Barbecue, of course, I've known for a long time, but I think when I started really exploring ingredients and so forth uh, was when I got a call uh, from Korea, uh, two guys who had discovered a process, a commercial process for making black garlic. Oh. And they, they wanted to send me some, and they sent me probably two years' worth <laughs> You got a lot of <laughs> <laughs> well, and, and, you know, and, and, and then it started showing up on all these menus because chefs loved it. Well, oh, it, yes. it started showing up on every menu because we gave every chef we could find. <laughs> oh. <laughs> <laughs> we, we, gave, we gave them their own special stash of black. Oh, black yes. <laughs> and I hope you liked them. Yeah. yeah was, it's a good job we liked it. <laughs> Yeah, but uh, so um, now, why why 
did Eder write about this golden queen's rice? Thank you for asking. So before golden queen, it was about the milling. So we have to think about uh, how the current rice uh, distribution happens. Okay. And you got to want to think about the whole supply chain. Now from this is where in Korea, it's right? produced. In Korea and in America too. Um, oh, okay. So let's talk about in America first. So the background is this. Uh, as you said, Korean food is getting more popular and we have now very creative chefs. They, want, they are trained usually at the culinary school and French um, or Italian, and then they start their own uh, restaurants and with the goal of uh, getting the Michelin star in three years where they want to really provide a very different, unique, but better experience to their customers, diners. Now, the way you make your restaurant different and your food is different is the ingredients. So you want to use good quality ingredients. Now, Koreans eat a lot of rice, so they now want the best rice. That's, that's fact number one. Fact number two, the, now then, let's see why they want the kimchi market rice instead of the rice at the market. <laughs> so rice... It's usually your rice taste. The, by the way, Koreans and Japanese eat uh, sushi rice or short grain. There's no such a term called sushi rice. It's a short grain. It's sticky and short. And mm-hmm. there's a mid grain and there's a long grain. So long grain is what the Indians and Vietnamese people eat. So it's a well, the, the Italians use short grain for risotto. Right, risotto too. It's, it's, we tasted it too. We milled it at uh, uh, Kimchi Market too. Just taste is a little bit different. Koreans and Japanese mm-hmm. have a very particular um, preference on, on those. So the rice gets longer. It gets less sticky. Koreans and Japanese like a sticky rice, which is short. Mm-hmm. Now, in America, uh, mm. Most of the rice, even despite what it says on the package, whether it's Korean language on the package or Japanese language on the package, mostly, unless it says it's a product of Korea or a product of Japan, it's all mostly from California. (laughs) Really? Yes. There's an area called Shasta. Shasta is a northeast part of northeast uh, from Sacramento. And okay. if you go there, they're so big farms, right? And then they grow mid grain, not short grain, mid grain. And then there's a, a big, big companies who have, that has, have a big, the milling machines. So what this milling machine do is the farmers harvest the the plant, rice plant, and big companies, they buy them, they mill it so that it becomes white rice, and they put it in different packages, and then they distribute. Um, So here's a problem, though. Your rice taste is determined by mainly three things, mostly. So 50%, 40 to 50% of your rice taste is determined by which variety of rice that you use. And about 35% is determined by when it was milled. So from brown rice to white rice. So the, you know, the plant is plant, you get remove the hull, then it becomes brown rice, and you remove the bran, B-R-A-N, then it becomes white rice. No matter which variety that you have, that's the process. So once you mill or polish from brown rice to white rice, then it starts oxidization. So it starts losing the flavor and aroma. Yeah, I was going to say, you've just taste. already gotten rid of the flavor, right? 
correct. No, uh, so white rice has its own, and but once it becomes from brown rice to become white rice, then oxidization starts losing the rice flavor and aroma and taste. So you want to eat the rice soon as as soon as you mill, as soon as you make the brown rice becomes white rice. But if you think about the California Shasta, you know, that the whole process, they put those rice, mill it, put it in a package, they distribute. You, and in America, law doesn't require to put which date and which year of the rice crop that you are using. So if okay. you go to market, if you check any packages, you will not find any uh, dates because the law doesn't require. So when you buy a rice from a market, you don't know, unless it says, you don't know which year of the crop that is and when it was milked. Mm -hmm. And once you sell, you have the white rice, you bought it, and you cook it, fine. But there's always a better way, which is, I mean, a way to taste this really fresh, you know, the best texture rice. That's when you buy the rice right after you mill it. So that's what we do. Now, so this is why we keep it in the refrigerator because that sort of stymied me. I didn't know about putting rice in the refrigerator, but I did so because you said to. Yes. The, you, got, you want to treat the rice as a fresh produce. Okay. And how long does it last in there? Rice doesn't have the best before date or expiration date. It, it's like a plant. And you eat them, and there's, there's no date. But you, that's why we recommend you buy a small amount and keep and something get, get something fresh. Like you okay. buy ten, 5 pounds or 10 pounds, put it in a refrigerator, and then you eat. Uh, then once it's done, then you order uh, another one. But here's the important thing. I said 40 to 50% of the rice taste is determined by which variety that you use. So even in, even in Korea, it's just a small country. I'm talking about South Korea only. Right. There are 250 to 300 different rice varieties, short grains. So they look maybe size-wise similar, but they're all different. So that's why Golden Queen is so unique. It, you cooked, and you're, you probably smell the popcorn aroma yes, that Golden yes, Queen yes. produces. So that's one of the varieties. We have Charm Dream. We have Kawaji, which um, the Michelin star chefs really love. So different rice varieties have the different uh, tastes and different aroma, different texture, different flavors. And we want we offer ten different varieties oh, from, that we handpicked from 250 to 300 the rice varieties that Korea produces. If you mix them, okay, the, this is great, this is great. Unless you know the blending, mm -hmm. we recommend you don't you just eat it as a single origin, like one variety, single variety rice. So Golden Queen, then eat Golden Queen. You don't want to mix it with other rices. Okay. So, and go back to California where uh, usually how the rice distribution happens in America. The, when the big companies buy the rice, the mid-grain, it's not short grain, it's mid-grain. And as I said, mid-grain has, probably has many different varieties, but they don't sort them. They just buy, okay, farm, Farmer Johnson and Farmer Smith. They produce meat grain, different varieties. Big companies don't care. They just buy it because they, they have a big machine. They want to mill it all at once and put it in the same bag. So it's all mixed. That's why the, it's all mixed rice. So the rice bag becomes really you know, blend, plain. You wouldn't taste the distinctive 
characteristics of the rice. And right. now, okay, you don't know when it was harvested, and you don't know when it was milled. So by the time the customer actually picked the rice and cooked it at home, there are a lot of things are missing. Whereas Kimchi Market, we are for transparency. So if you see our rice, we give you the rice variety. It's single, it's not mixed. And you can choose your weight. You, we give you the, the harvest year and the milling date when we milled it. And lastly, we let you choose the milling rate. So if you like brown rice, okay, brown rice. If you like the white rice, then white rice. And there are, we also give you three more options in between, between brown rice and white rice. Because on the left-hand side, there's a brown rice. On the right-hand side, there's a white rice. And brown rice, you cut out the bran because it's brown. But inside, it has a white rice. And the white sure. rice is covered with the, uh, is coated uh, by the bran. Bran is what has oils right. and nutrition are, the fibers. Mm -hmm. We let you decide how much of the bran you cut out. So we're talking about very science and uh, extreme uh, customization. So every single rice grain, we let you customize. Now, all of, all of this is done in Korea? No. The... No. Korea, Korea does produce brown rice, then we import, oh, okay. we keep them single, and then the milling part happens in America, okay, in New so York. You, so you, so you, you have control. After, after you get it from Korea, you, you put it through the process you were just talking to us about. Correct. Now, uh, tell me this. Um, how, how do... Yeah, but as a, a Korean person, how would I usually eat that? Would I eat it plain? Uh, usually people are just uh, more familiar with the white rice. So I'll say white rice. Um, but if you get to taste more and start feeling like, oh, I want to try something, you know, more brownish, then you can go back to go down to 70% off brand. So okay. that's closer to white rice. But yeah. So, you know, you can imagine a, a draw line on the left-hand side, there's a brown rice. Uh -huh. On the right-hand side, there's a white rice. And from brown rice, it starts becoming more whiter right. while it goes to the white, uh, right side then you can actually pinpoint where you want to stop. So from well, now, brown you, rice... You have a lot of, of educating to do of your customers because most non-Koreans wouldn't have a clue about any of that. Well, Koreans don't, need, uh, don't know neither. I didn't know it neither until I really <laughs> started the researching and doing this. Um, so it became a, a trend. It's not a big trend. Um, but for past seven, eight years, I've noticed that even in Korea, in Seoul usually, uh, there are small shops uh -huh. that became so obsessed with the rice and rice quality, they start milling. Yeah, and, we and we're the only one in America who does this um, rice importing and then... Uh, the mill for customization. Yeah, well, you said you're going to have to produce a video on, on how to cook it, though. <laughs> yes, yes, we should. Thank you. Thanks for the feedback. <laughs> uh, yeah, now, um, the, 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 um, do, you have, do you sell other things from your shop or just the, the rice? I'm sorry. Oh, yeah, we, we have other things. So we are very proud. Um, so our beginning, our humble beginning, we're still humble. Uh, so 2019, that's when we started the service, uh, Kimchi Market. So we, as you mentioned, gochujang, denjang, which is soybean paste, and soy sauce. 
sesame oil and perilla oil. Those are the five products that we started with. We imported Absolutely. from Korean uh, artisans, and now we have 600 that we directly import. Oh, from wow. Farmers you and have 600 products. Yes. Wow. Well, you know, with your rice, I love your packaging, by the way. I love that. Thank um, you. It, now how do people uh, get this? I mean, you sell online if you're e-commerce, right? Yes. We, you can come to kimcmarket.com. That's K-I-M-C market.com. And you can look for rice. Then you will see our milled rice or packaged rice. Okay. And I'm there are many other things. Yep. And the Michelin star restaurant, we're a very, uh, we're a proud supplier for Atomics. Yeah, I, Atomics. I saw that. Yes, yeah. Atomics. And look at all the packaging that you even have on your website. It's gorgeous. Thank you. Yeah. Our fashion people in Kimchi Market, they are very particular about the design too. Uh-huh. And we also design for our producers for free. We, if we like the product or the food that they make and they have a good philosophy, and, but their packaging is, doesn't necessarily reflect what they produce, then we actually, our designers work around it and talk with the producer. Um, then we make the different labels and different, um, uh, different designs so that the farmers or producers, they like it, then they start producing that. We, we always promote our uh, producers, their names, uh, why they produce this product, what's really? the process. Yeah, our fermentation products, by the way, usually takes three years to four years. Full fermentation, no additives, no chemicals. Wow. And no, all 100% I don't know Korean how you ingredients. Figure out I mean, I don't know how you even you even sell toothbrushes. I mean, I don't know how you <laughs> <never> <laughs> well, I mean, you you have five colored noodles. I mean, I've never seen so much stuff in my life. How do you ever yes. sort to? How do people know what to buy? Uh, so that's that's what the advertisement will do. Uh, we are actually not doing well online native but we're not uh, doing the advertisement then we are still getting new customers found us and how that happens it's all about the content so as I said we really want to the way we look at the sustainability is it's also more expensive idea mm-hmm. um, not only just uh, be mindful of environment, we also think that sustainability means that our producers, we provide, uh, we, we offer, you know, sufficient uh, money for our producers to produce so that they don't have to uh, compromise their quality for, you know, to meet the lower price. So we don't ask that. And that's, I think, so we, we want to give the, uh, the producers not, uh, you know, like, hey, we don't ask them to lower the price or something. But instead, we know, we only pick, uh, we have a strong belief in the producers, why they make it, etc. So we want to actually write about those, both Korean language and English, so yeah, customers you have this actually can read. In Korean too, yeah. Yes, yes. Yeah. Now, wow. because we write those things, when people Google, uh, for example, organic Korean food, you will find Kimchi Market on top. Not advertisement, but the Google's uh, algorithm will pick us because we're we most uh, we're most relevant to that keyword. Uh, Korean supermarket were number two, sometimes number three on Google. And that's how we bring the new customers and traffic. It's not through the advertisement. 
Well, you even make kitchenware. I don't. <laughs> I mean, you sell it. Um, yeah, I. It's it's certainly it's it's a whole new area. Um, it was to us, and I'm so glad I was able to locate it, and uh, and just peek in a little bit with through the rice. Um, but there are all kinds of things. I'm looking here at your. Uh, I mean, it's all prime stuff. I mean, it's not. It's probably superior to anything we've ever tasted. Roasted mini black soybean. Wow. Yeah. Uh, your potato bread. I mean, there's so many things on here. It's a new horizon uh, for us, um, Ryan. I really thank you for introducing us to this. Uh, listeners, I think you really ought to experience this website and try to get some of these products. Um, and 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 Ryan is going to make little videos to show you what to do with all of them. Right, Ryan? <laughs> thank you. <laughs> True. We're, we're trying. Yes. <laughs> oh dear! And you even have alcoholic drinks. <laughs> Uh, alcoholic drinks, yes, the Korean thing. That's, you know, again, that's interesting. We're we're very humbled um, by our growth and uh, people's love. So we are we want to be the premium and better quality Asian market. Well, wow. uh, then we so we had to start building our Korean vertical. I'm Korean American, and I know. Uh, this whole uh, like good quality food, and so that's that's how we began. And there's a reason why I started it uh, and my whole team. It's because I recognized my life as an immigrant. Um, we don't. I don't have a big family in in America. Uh, I, I'm married. Uh, my wife has a young aunt. She also lives in Brooklyn, and she was only a couple years older than us. And so we're very close. They have two kids. I have two kids. We were very close. We used to travel together. And my young uncle, uh, Inuk, he passed away four years oh ago. He was, oh he was only 45. Oh, no. And, and I had to run the funeral. They, we don't have big family. Uh, to the two boys that uh, he was survived by, um, they don't have affiliation with Korea. They they oh, were born right. and raised in New York. They don't. They only speak English. <laughs> Italian is their favorite food, and they wouldn't go back. So they have to stay here. And I grew up without my father. And I, that was a reckoning moment that I need to be, I'm the only male adult in the family. I am the father figure. I have to be here, stay strong, healthy, and give uh, guidance to those two boys and my two kids. And so that, that was the moment that I started thinking about health and like the food that I eat. And that's when I started reading the labels back of the food. Right. We all I, as I said, I had no relation <laughs> with the food industry before. So that, that changed me a lot. And then well, I, I found that... I think you're that, totally okay. up to the task. You sound like you're up to the task. And um, I'm, I'm, listeners, you can also... Um, look up the Korean recipes on the website and, and take a fling at, at going out of your comfort zone to try some of these wonderful, wonderful Korean dishes. Um, a very good friend of mine uh, got to, she had rough pregnancies, and she's Chinese, well, she's Taiwanese, and her husband's Korean, and her mother-in-law fixed her Korean soups which got her through her pregnancy. <laughs> Always wondered oh. what they were. <laughs> Maybe the seaweed soup. <laughs> I don't know what they were. Anyhow, I, I, I'm glad to have met you, and, and I, I love talking to you, and I thank you so much for this wonderful introduction to a new adventure, which I'm going to enjoy pursuing. 
Thank you, Anne. Thank you.